Have you been outbirding? Outbirding with Field Guides is the new birding video series you've been hearing about. The latest episodes from Lima, Peru, Arizona, Brazil, Cape May, and the Prairie Potholes include adventure, conversations with fascinating bird people, and field pointers. Remember, even when you're at home, you can always go outbirding with Field Guides. Join the fun at outbirding.com ABA. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. What a week! What a week filled with lots of not necessarily involved with birding news. Just in case anyone is wondering or concerned, the American Birding Podcast constitutional line of succession goes me, Greg Neese, Jenny Duberstein, Jason Ward, Nick Lund, and then 12 Savannah Sparrows in a trench coat. So we've got you covered in the event something happens to me. I know that is probably a load off your mind. You're welcome. It's been a great few weeks in exciting birding content that is only available to our Canadian listeners. First, there was Julia Zarankin's new book. We talked to her last month. I think it's now available in the United States or, or will be very soon. But also, if you're a CBC watcher, and by that I mean Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, not Christmas bird count, though there is probably an intersection in there. Uh, ABA board member and Toronto birder Paul Riss is the host of a documentary, Rare Bird Alert, which premiered on the CBC last weekend. It's very well received from what I can gather. In it, Paul travels all over the U.S. and Canada talking to birders about their experiences, why they love birding, with a nod to concerns about climate change. I have not seen it, obviously, but I have read a number of reviews, and they all say that it's very fun. Uh, and the link to it will be in the show notes. A warning, though, to be able to watch the program, you will have to either be in Canada or make your computer think you're in Canada. There are ways to do that, some illicitly. I'm not going to encourage them. I'm just going to say that they're out there. It should be available in the U.S. at some point in the future. Perhaps then I can point to that. We can have Paul here on the podcast to talk about it. We certainly like to promote the cool things our board members are doing, apart from being involved in the ABA, of course. On the show this week, I have some thoughts about wildlife illiteracy, rare bird reporting, maybe a little bit about gatekeeping. It's a bit of a stream of consciousness commentary, so you know, fair warning. But first, I was out of the house last week. For only the second time since March, I went to the beach with my family. I did not even take my laptop. What I'm saying is that I did not plan to edit an interview for the upcoming week, and instead, I'm going back to the archives and pulling one out to run again. I know, I know, I hope you don't look too cross at me. This is a thing that was bound to happen when we went weekly. It won't happen too often. I could promise that, but we do have four years worth of great interviews that I can pull from. And if we have any new listeners, it might be nice to kind of bring them back up to the top and share them. So a couple of years ago, I spoke with Dr. Ariel Fernier about her work studying migrating rails, conservation, STEM outreach for women. She is a clapper rail connoisseur, a black rail booster, a Sora supporter, any number of other swamp chicken superlatives. We go back to talk to her. After this week's, this week's, not back then, this week's Red Birds.
This is your Rare Bird Focus for the last part of September, first part of October 2020. The Eared Quetzal eruption in the southwest went from sublime to ridiculous in the past week with the discovery of an individual in Grant County, New Mexico. You might remember that all previous birds this year, which may be as many as five individuals, have all been seen in Arizona, and indeed that is the only state that has ever hosted this species until one was photographed in the Gila National Forest this past week, obviously a first record for New Mexico. But that wasn't even the most extraordinary bird to show up in the land of enchantment this week. That prize goes to a European golden plover, that's right, from Europe, at Maxwell National Wildlife Refuge in Colfax County in the north part of the state, obviously another first. Up to this point, the furthest west record of this species in North America was Delaware, with the vast majority of sightings coming from the eastern side of the island of Newfoundland. So pretty amazing record, and one that makes even the state's fifth record of common red pole, seen this week near Albuquerque, a bit of a trash bird. I'm joking. Or am I? Other firsts to note this week include a Nashville warbler in the Northwest Territories near Hay River. Um, that sighting is almost certainly a matter of coverage, as Alaska has about a half dozen records of this species, all of which would presumably have to pass over NT to get there. In Connecticut, a common ringed plover at Hammonasset Beach is a state first and the latest of those European shorebirds to be seen in the lower 48 this fall. They, of course, breed in Nunavut, but primarily migrate over to Eurasia. I don't know whether this run of common rings has to do with an actual influx of the birds on the East Coast or just a greater comfort among birders at making that frequently difficult identification. But in any case, a long-expected first for Connecticut. Less expected was a painted red start at P. Island National Wildlife Refuge in Dare County, North Carolina. First record for that state, and one of only very few records of this species on the East Coast, and even most of those are up towards the Northeast part. I think this might be the first record for the Southeast. And in Ohio, a first record Brewer's Sparrow was seen in Lorain County, just west of Cleveland, a first record there as well, and one of a few brewer sparrows we've seen in the eastern half of the continent in recent weeks. Those are all the highlights for the week, as always, for a more complete look of all the rare birds seen across the U.S. and Canada. And there were a lot of cool birds this week. Check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning at aba.org rba, or you can go to our Rare Bird Facebook page at facebook.group slash rare, or follow us on Twitter at ababirdalert. There are a few birds that are as satisfying to get a good look at as rails. They are secretive, they are enigmatic, and they often require and reward hard work. My guest Ariel Fernier probably knows that better than just about anyone. She's a postdoctoral researcher at Mississippi State University where she works with the Gulf of Mexico Avian Monitoring Network. Her doctoral work focused primarily on rail migration and how they use the landscape. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. Uh, Ariel, I know you're busy these days. Thanks so much for making some time to join me. I'm really happy to be here, of course. Always happy to talk rails. Cool. Uh, so what is it about this this group of birds that you, you found, you still find, so fascinating? Um, so I, I really got hooked on rails quite young. I, I volunteered with a rail project um, in Ohio where I grew up with Blocks on Bird Observatory. And I just, I found them really fascinating. And the fact that we didn't know a lot about them also intrigued me. You know, there are just a lot of questions about just like their basic natural history and just, you know, things that we just didn't know. So it, it kind of felt like an opportunity to get to be like one of like the old school ornithologists who gets to like see things for the first time or, or figure out kind of these really, you know, kind of basic questions that to some degree we take for granted in a lot of other bird species. Absolutely. It's really, you know, hard work for 
for birders to find rails, they sort of sort of melt into that habitat really effectively. How did you solve that problem with your work of actually finding the birds that you were studying? Yeah, so it's really tough. Um, and so Courtney Conway and, and several others have developed a really great protocol for how to how to survey them during the breeding season. Um, you can use a playback, you know, which is something that we don't always encourage um, with birds, but when we're doing it for rails, it can be a really effective method for if we have a reason to be studying them. But I, for my doctoral work, I was studying them during autumn migration. And during that time of year, they don't really vocalize. Sora will occasionally call, but they don't respond in the same way that they would during the breeding season. And like Virginia rails and yellow rails just don't vocalize at all. And so we had to go with a very different method. Um, and so we went with nocturnal flushing surveys instead. Um, so we're actually out in the wetland looking for them at night. Yeah, that, I, I imagine that probably... Um really messed up your your sleep schedule too rails um they don't they don't abide by our sort of our day night sort of activity they're they're really difficult to they're really difficult to find definitely so how effective was this how many rails would you find on like a given a normal night out um i mean well it depends on where you are in migration early in the season you're only seeing a handful of birds but peak migration you can see over a hundred sora in in a couple hours of surveying that's wild yeah yeah so it works quite well when there's a lot of birds around when birders find rails you know we're sort of out in the marsh and and sometimes you can use playback or sometimes if you're out early in the morning or late at night you can get them kind of vocalizing on their own there's always sort of the sense that there are you know not very many in a in a given marsh because there's only you know maybe one or two vocalizing at any any one point but you you found like hundreds of them in these marshes yeah and and you know so with the statistical modeling that i do we're able to estimate something called detection probability which is the the probability of of seeing something given that it's there and even with these surveys where we're detecting hundreds of birds our detection probability is still less than 10 percent. so we're only seeing <laughs> like one in every 10 that's out there so, you know, during during peak migration, there are a lot of Sora in Missouri. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of them out there. How do you think that affects what we, the sort of research that was done before on, you know, monitoring rail populations, rail numbers? How do you think this, we're getting a really skewed response, just regular birders out there finding these rails, obviously. Well, we're not, we're missing a ton is what I guess what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons, you know, until we had the technology to easily go out and do playback during the breeding season, it really held back our ability to study rails, you know, during the summer, which is where most of the work's been done. Since, you know, before we had, you know, iPods with, with battery powered speakers, you had to haul around like deep cell marine batteries, which is just not very fun, um, you know, hiking through the wetlands with one of those on your back. Um, so it's it, it's been it's been really limiting. So rails are a group of birds that, you know, some technology is really helping us kind of open up um, kind of the, the questions that we can ask and where we can ask them. Because I mean, we also have tools like um, automated recording units that we can leave out for weeks at a time that will collect data in really remote areas as well, which is also very exciting. And so so what did you find out with regard to birders assume rails are, are moving and using these wetlands uh, at a certain time in a certain way? So 
when did you find out versus when they're actually using these wetlands, how they're actually using these places? Yeah, so the, the previous work, so all my work took place in Missouri. Um, and the previous work that had been done and kind of what the eBird data was suggesting was that rails weren't really arriving in the state of Missouri until the latter part of August or the early part of September. There were a handful of observations before then, but the idea was there really weren't consistent birds around until then. Um, but my, my project, so, so today, you know, as we're recording this is August 10th. Um, which is kind of a weird day for me because for the past five years, this has been the day that I went into the field. Um, oh, right. This is my first year in like five years that I haven't been heading out to the rails. Sitting in an office instead of out in a marsh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a little surreal. Um, but every year on the first day of surveys, we have found birds. So again, I think it gets at this idea that in, until they're in fairly high densities, your opportunity to detect them if you're not actually out in the marsh looking for them, which, you know, most birders understandably don't want to be out in the marsh right. digging around for them, um, you're not going to detect them until they're there in higher densities. Um, so it is really important when we're studying rails to to make sure that we're doing it in a way that we can get these first individuals when they're showing up. Because that's really important for, for management and conservation. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, I... If we're, if we're using sort of birder data to determine when these rails are, you know, the people who are managing these these wetlands, in your case, in Missouri, the Department of Conservation there, they're probably not preparing these wetlands for rails at the right time. You know, maybe they're too dry too early and the, the rails are not able to use these places. Is that is that sort of what you found? Yeah, yeah. So that was one of the big observations that came out of the first two years of my project. Um, so we ran my project for five years, and the first two were basically just observational, trying to figure out what was out there and when. And one of the big observations was, you know, these birds are arriving quite early, much earlier than we thought they were. And they're encountering these largely dry wetlands because the wetland timing is um, the, the flooding of the wetland timing, excuse me, um, is timed more for when blue-winged teal are arriving and then later in the season when the other waterfowl arrive. And so in the last three years, we did an experiment that I'm still working on analyzing right now. Um, but the basic gist of it is, you know, if we flood these wetlands earlier in migration, like say at the beginning of August, do the rails respond to it? Because, you know, rails like wetlands, we, we, we know that at least at a basic level. Um, and then also, you know, what are the impacts on waterfowl later on? Um, and, and at this point, it looks like most of the time you can flood wetlands earlier in autumn migration and the rails respond in a really positive way. And it, it doesn't seem to have a negative impact on the waterfowl, which is really excellent. So what was the worry about with the waterfowl if they fled too early, that there'd be too much growth and the waterfowl would stay away? Um, well, since we're dealing with autumn migration, it's actually the reverse. So we were more worried about the flooded wetlands would cause the vegetation to die back more quickly. Oh, okay. And then we would end up with just open pools of water um, later in migration, which isn't as attractive to waterfowl, um, especially for, for feeding and cover. Um, I mean, they do spend some time in open water, but that's that's not all their needs. So yeah, I'm sure the, the work that you're doing now with the Gulf of Mexico monitoring network looks at rails in addition to, you know, other things they're, they're interested in. They're such an, you know, evocative bird of that coastal salt marsh habitat. Uh, are you doing any rail work now? And if so, is it sort of related to the migration work that you'd, you'd done before? Um, so my job right now is not not looking at any particular rail. I'm working really closely with the marsh bird group as, as part of the monitoring network. Um, but my job is more coordinating and kind of long-term conservation planning. Um, so I have some rail projects that are going on the side with some collaborators. Um, but as part of my job right now, I'm not, not doing any rail migration work. I'm hoping at some point to get some kind of wintering rail project going here on the Gulf. 
But, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, only been in the job four months, so I'm still very much trying to make sure that I'm doing the job that I need to do before I start adding more things on top. <laughs> sure. But I, I do miss the field work. Do you do you um the rails that you worked with were primarily Sora and Virginia Rail and um and some yellow rail and some yeah. yellow rail. Did you find that they needed slightly different habitats that they use different parts of the landscape or did they when they're migrating did they sort of all kind of collapse into the same sort of wetlands yeah so um sora are more of a generalist so just because you find sora in a wetland doesn't mean that you're going to find virginia rail or yellow rail but if you find virginia or yellow rail there are probably sora around so the yellow rail tend to be more of a wet prairie species so while we have on occasion found them in fairly deep water generally speaking they're more on the edges of the wetland Um, where there's just very shallow flooding. And then Virginia rails tend to be in areas with more kind of dense vegetation. Um, They can deal with pretty deep water. That's not a problem. Um, But they they really select for different kinds of vegetation, whereas Sora are more just looking for some cover and some flooded water, some flooded land. So yeah, Sora, much more generalist. There's also just way more Sora out there. Yeah, I'm sure. So to some extent, they might have to be more generalist just because there's so many of them. Yeah, no, I, and you know, in my experience, I've I've certainly found Sora in places like really ephemeral stuff sometimes too, especially in migration. You yeah, know, they'll just put down wherever there's you know a small patch of you know cattails and some shallow water. It's pretty pretty remarkable. Definitely <laughs> their ability to find that stuff. Yeah. Um. So I'm gonna I'm gonna change gears here for a second. In addition to rails, you're really interested in in promoting you know STEM opportunities, and for people who may be listening who don't know that, that's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics opportunities for for women and girls um what are some ways for organizations or even just you know interested individuals to sort of amplify those voices to give those people appropriate attention for the work that they're doing yeah um i mean i think there's a couple different ways that folks can go about it and you know how how you go about it is largely going to depend on you know your involvement in an organization or in birding in a lot of cases it's it's really really powerful um, especially for for young girls that are you know in elementary school and middle school to see female role models, um, and especially to see female role models that look like them. You know, so a lot of times we talk about you know women in science, um, but we also need to be thinking about you know representation of of you know women of color in science as well. Um, and so ha- hiring people to be part of your organization or, or getting people to be part of your organization's leadership or to lead field trips or to go into classrooms um, so that so that these young girls can see, hey, you know, she looks like me. We have a common experience and she's really into birds or she's involved in conservation. And so then that's an option that I have as well. Um, you know, and I, and I think that can be can be really powerful, you know, and, and that can happen a lot of different ways. Did you have those sort of mentors when you were kind of coming up as a young scientist? Definitely, definitely. I was um, really involved with Blackstone Bird Observatory in Ohio growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do, they do great work. <laughs> they do. They do great stuff. And there were a lot of really great women um, involved with that organization. Um, Kim Kaufman is still a really huge mentor of mine. Um, and there were many, many others along the way as well. And that, and that was really huge for me to be able to see that that was something that I could do with my career. I mean, there were there were many, many great men who also mentored me as well. And, and they were very helpful and powerful in, in many ways. But it can be really, really good to see like, hey, we have this commonality and, and you were able to do it so I can do it too. Mm-hmm. 
That's great. So, so coming back to Rails for a second, is there any any work that you feel still needs to be done? What are the, some of the big questions about rail migration? Oh, there are so many. I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> all good research kind of asks more questions about about your subject. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so stuff that's really directly related to what I was doing in Missouri. We have a lot of questions that remain about stopover duration. Um, so we have a little bit of evidence to suggest from my work that, that Sora are making really long stopovers in Missouri before they continue on, which is kind of unexpected and unusual. Um, you know, we're talking like greater than 45 days stopovers. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think that would be something really interesting to look at. We also have a lot of questions about migratory connectivity. Um, so I looked at that a little bit in my dissertation, but we really need to better understand kind of full life cycle and a really big um, part of that that's missing for rails, especially North American rails, is where are they spending the winter? Um, you know, we know that some yellow Virginia and Soras are spending the winter down here on the Gulf Coast, but we also know that some proportion of the population is is leaving the United States and going farther south. And we don't know what proportion that is. And for most of the species, we don't really have a good feel for how far south they're going either. And whether or not a lot of them are directly crossing the Gulf of Mexico or if they're going around. So many questions. Yeah, I definitely think we tend to underestimate rails ability to to migrate. I mean, obviously, rails show up in crazy places sometimes. Uh, There's some remarkable records of rails. Now, you know, off the top of my head, the Rufus Neck Wood Rail in, in New Mexico. There's... You know, there was a purple gallinule and none of it not that long ago. I mean, they're such little chunky birds with such short little wings. We don't often think that they're they're able to move these long distances, but clearly they are. They're doing some really remarkable stuff. Yeah, I mean, they're great dispersers. That's why we have all these endemic rail species on tiny islands around the world. You know, they're they can get around when they need to. Thanks, Ariel. That was that was really fascinating. Uh, Ariel Fernier is a researcher with the Gulf of Mexico Avian Monitoring Network. She has done a ton of cool work with rails. You can find her on Twitter at Rally Rule. You should follow her. Thanks again for the chat, Ariel. Always happy to do it. My commentary this week is a bit of a stream of consciousness one based on some stuff that came up earlier this week all at once. Now my brain tried to connect them. So bear with me. I think they'll tie together at the end. So first thing, a former basketball player and commentator Rex Chapman posted this video on his Twitter feed on Sunday of what he claimed were baby giraffes. If you were online at all, you you might have seen this. Chapman has nearly one million followers to whom he tweets a lot of kind of cutesy, heartwarming stuff. So you know things tend to get a lot of attention. But the thing was so obviously CGI generated that anyone with any experience seeing giraffes in the wild or at a zoo or at a picture in a book or the internet or even people whose only giraffe experience comes from watching old Toys R Us commercials would know that it was fake. And yet, this is the internet, so there were 30,000 odd retweets, only a small percentage of whom recognized the obvious fakery. So this is what I call wildlife illiteracy. And it's a problem. You know, maybe not a huge problem given everything else that's going on, but a problem nonetheless. Second thing. The ABA maintains a rare bird alert Facebook group where people share reports of notable state, provincial, continental rarities. You probably know about it. I talk about it in every episode. The whole rarity twitching community is this interesting place 
that sort of rides this line between getting a potentially interesting bird out to people quickly and getting it out correctly. And to that end, we occasionally see interesting birds that aren't conclusively identified, published to this, ours, or other rare bird reporting sites. And then there's the subsequent discussion about whether or not this sighting is legitimate or whether it is just a mistake. This is pretty normal, and I think this process is actually really important, though it can feel a little intrusive to those who might not be familiar with it. And then, you know, obviously tied to internet culture, it can feel very critical. The short version of the story is that we had a situation like this pop up, and so people got turned off by this questioning conversation. And I, and I do see why. But this, I think, is the cure to wildlife illiteracy. I think that the skepticism that is part of the birding world should be maintained. And in fact, I think honing your skepticism is one of the better aspects of being a birder, one of those aspects that sort of transcends birding and can be applicable to your to your regular life, especially when it's sort of tied to the acceptance, as it is in birding, that just about anything is possible, even through the skepticism. But do we in the birding community sometimes do a bad job of making this questioning process transparent and friendly and useful to all involved? Yes. Do we sometimes direct these questions too often at those who do not fit the traditional older white male birding stereotype? Undeniably. Is the internet a force for good and a very bad medium for these discussions? 100%. I'm torn on this, as you can probably guess. It is my goal here on this podcast and in the books I've written and just generally as a member of the birding community to demystify these processes and these discussions because I think that they're important and it's how we learn. Besides, you've probably heard me talk about it before. This is part of my normalized misidentification spiel. Maybe this is part two of the part one I did a couple weeks ago. The solution to that, of course, is to have these discussions transparently and in the interest of solving this, you know, these mini mysteries and with the benefit of the doubt given to everyone involved. But humans being humans, we aren't always good at making that part clear. I think we can get there with just a little kindness and humility shown to our fellow birders, kindness in the words of those critiquing a sighting and humility from those whose sighting is being critiqued. We can practice that every day. We can stamp out wildlife illiteracy. We can learn more. We can learn better. This isn't always a better world than one in which thousands of people share photos of obviously fake baby giraffes. Because come on, Rex. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the other free resources the ABA provides, please consider joining the ABA. It really helps us out, especially in these weird pandemic times. We have memberships at whatever level works for you. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. I want to make special shout outs to Tracy Henschbarger of Escondido, California, Rachel Murphy, who is serving overseas, Derek Urbanowski of Bellingham, Washington, Stephen Fallick of Alpine, Texas, William Kennerly of Corvallis, Oregon, Scott Risco of Lighthouse Point, Florida, Joel Zimmerman of McCall, Idaho, Mary Lamke of Ronert Park, California, Mike Galligan of Cody, Wyoming, and Celia Cunningham of Detroit, Michigan. 
of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much for that. Welcome, welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He's not involved in the line of succession for the same reason that one of the cabinet members has to stay home during the State of the Union address. He's our designated survivor, like the whooping crane. Technical production is by John Lowry, who thought that requiring Senate approval of that common Red Shank sighting was overkill, but was really excited to bring home one of the pens that the eBird reviewer used to sign it into being. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, whose attempts to filibuster this interview rerun were rebuffed when I overwhelmed their quorum with laughing goals, who can't vote, but are pretty annoying when crammed into a hearing room. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. I've been working on this schoolhouse rock style presentation on the evolution of merganser beaks called, uh, and I'm really sorry for this, How a Bill Becomes a Saw. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. See you next week.